You are listening to an audio resource produced by Faith Presbyterian Church in Anchorage, Alaska. If you would like to learn more about the life and ministry of Faith Presbyterian, you can do so by visiting us online at faithanchorage.org. If you would please open your Bibles to Mark's Gospel this morning. Mark chapter 16, verses 2 through 8. If you don't have a Bible with you, we can get a Bible to you. It's not that hard. Just wave your hand and someone will get one to you. Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter 16. Each Sunday, as you know, I like to address our little theologians. Uh, moms and uh, dads, if this is a distraction for your family, if you would uh, let me know, email me or uh, nudge me after the worship service. Uh, But little theologians, I'd like for you to, if mom and dad say it's okay to uh, draw while I preach, if you would draw a picture of three ladies leaving the tomb. As you know, they come and they see the empty tomb. Jesus is not there. Uh, Because he is risen. But then they leave that tomb, and that's what I like to see in your artwork. All of us should be at Mark chapter 16. We'll look at verses 2 through 8. But before we uh, even uh, hear God's word, we'll pray. So please pray with me. Holy Spirit, would you be with us in the reading the hearing of this special word, this divine word, this word superintended in the history of the world by you, Spirit, that it would be authoritative and inerrant, that it would be a guide for belief and duty. And Holy Spirit, would you also be with me as I explain this word? Would you use me in ways beyond uh, even my imagination? That my explanation would bring glory to my Holy Father. Again, Spirit, thank you for bringing us to this place. In the name of Jesus, amen. So Mark chapter 16, verses 2 through 8. Listen to God's word. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, 
And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. This is the word of our Lord. Sometimes uh, Christians today have a tendency, I think, to believe that never in the history of the world has anti-Christian persecution been as advanced as it is now. And given the nature that in our own country, uh, the number of people who claim no religious affiliation at all, uh, that number certainly is growing by leaps and bounds. And so one might wonder if anti-Christian sentiment is stronger, more so than it ever has been. What this means is that Uh, Christian religious practice and reasoning from a position of the authority of the Bible is actually becoming an increasingly odd way to conduct one's life. And I'm sure that most Christians feel this. Their desire to live life according to the Bible, their desire to uh, practice uh, Christianity uh, stands out more now than perhaps 10, 15 years ago. And then combined with this, Christians today will turn their eyes on the Christian church and they'll tend to think, uh, never before in the history of the world has the church been so thoroughly weak and confused. Uh, The average Christian knows very little about the Bible, very little about the doctrine of the Bible, and is therefore ill-equipped to carry Christianity forward. Now, uh, many Christians today will think this, this very thing, that in the history of the world, uh, persecution's never been quite what it is today, and the ignorance of the church has never been quite what it is today. Uh, these critiques against an antagonistic culture and against an unprepared church, they're certainly not empty critiques. I've made some of these critiques myself. However, let's not forget that there have always been objections to Christianity, and the church has always been susceptible to her own ignorance. And we want to remember that because we don't want to slip into the charge of C.S. Lewis of chronological snobbery, thinking that just because something stands out in our time that it never stood out in ages past. I'm beginning my sermon this way because I don't want us to forget that in the bustling city of Corinth during the first century, there was a subset of people in the church, a subset of people in the church, who actually wavered in their belief in the resurrection of Jesus. Why would the resurrection be so hard for them to believe as Paul addresses them in 1 Corinthians 15? Well, I don't think that this is a difficult question at all. Uh, Looking out at the free-thinking, polytheistic, self-centered, lust-filled culture of the days of the Corinthian church, it makes sense that those individuals within the church would struggle to make an argument for the resurrection in their culture. Looking within the church, perhaps they saw that the church had a lack of biblical and theological understanding, and they felt hopeless. No one in the church believes in the resurrection, or many do not, and the culture is uh, so deplorable that there is no message then to be brought to the culture. But you know, just like today, 
the antagonistic cultural setting, the ignorance of our own church today runs a risk, does it not? Just like the risk of the Corinthian church of presenting a form of Christianity that is elastic, that's stretchy, that somehow the resurrection is something that we can give up in light of cultural advances, in light of intellectual advances. And perhaps the church today is susceptible to this precisely for the reason that the church today doesn't know her Bible very well. Well, whether we acknowledge that today or whether we want to say this only existed in Corinth, it ought to be interesting to us what Paul said to the Corinthian church in which there was a subset of professing believers who struggled with believing in the resurrection. Paul said to this church of Corinth, and he says to the church today, that if there is no resurrection of Jesus, then everything else that the church believes is futile. It's a puff of air. It's, it's nothing. The resurrection of Jesus is absolutely critical, and Paul says it's critical for a couple of reasons. The first reason that Paul cites is that if Jesus is not resurrected, then Paul says that the Christian is still in their sins, 1 Corinthians 15, 17. What Paul means by this expression is that there is still some unfinished business between you and God if there's no such thing as the resurrection. You profess to be a person who is reconciled to God and has peace in this life, but if there's no resurrection, well... Your religion's a sham because you are still subject then to God's condemning judgment just like anyone else, which means there is no rational ground for your peace at all. You know, life uh, is filled with challenges and struggles. And Paul is saying to the church that there is nothing for a life like that if there is no resurrection. Because no resurrection would mean that your sin, your nature, who you are is a human being. Without the resurrection, that actually bars you from heavenly contentedness. If there's no resurrection, you are still in your sin. But second of all, as Paul is encouraging the Corinthian church, uh, Paul also says that if there is no resurrection of Jesus, uh, there is no hope beyond what you can manufacture for yourself today. Beyond the hope that you can manufacture for yourself today, there's absolutely nothing. What you have today is all you'll ever have. If you're deeply filled with grief, get used to it. If your body is ravished by disease, get used to it. If you are chased and harassed by a particular sin, get used to it. If there's no resurrection at all, Paul says, human effort then is all that you have. And if human effort provides no satisfaction, then too bad. All hope dies without the resurrection of Jesus. Those are the two things that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 to the church in Corinth that has a subset of individuals who struggle with belief in the resurrection. If there's no resurrection, you're still in your sins. And if there's no resurrection, there is no hope at all for you. But our passage this morning tells us that despite perceived cultural antagonism, and despite the relative ignorance of the church, the resurrection is real. 
And because the resurrection is real, there is freedom from our sin nature, and there is a hope that extends beyond this life. Jesus is not stopped by death. And since he's not stopped by death, he's available to you and to me today. Now, in our passage this morning, if you'll look with me at verse 2, we're first told that uh, three women are on a mission, are they not? These women are Mary Magdalene, who had been healed by Jesus and uh, then traveled with him, sat under his teaching. And then there's a Mary, which likely refers to the mother of Jesus, but some doubt this. And then Salome, most likely uh, Jesus's aunt, uh, the mother of uh, James and John, uh, the wife of Zebedee. Now, they've set out from home uh, just as the sun is beginning to rise. Just enough light to see where they're going. Just enough light to be able to discern which is the correct tomb. But not quite enough light to be seen by others. Why so early, why so secretly on this first day of the week? Well, perhaps you know right now where the disciples are. Where are they? The Bible is very clear that the, 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 that the disciples are actually hiding behind locked doors. If the religious authorities of the day caught Jesus and crucified Jesus, well, they'll next come after the disciples of Jesus. And so the disciples are hiding. There's deep secrecy in this mission of the women. But the women venture out, and they venture out for a particular purpose to anoint the dead body of Jesus. The anointing of a dead body was a very, very specific in Egyptian culture as a means of preserving the body for a future life and an embalming. Uh, not so in Jewish culture, not so in Greek culture either, where the anointing of a dead body was a form of a, a devotion, affiliation with uh, that individual. And it's only in Jewish culture, of all world culture, where there is an actual procedure for this kind of anointing. Uh, an anointing that shows a particular devotion. Uh, Calvin says that God told the Hebrew people to uh, anoint the dead in this way because God was teaching them to imagine resurrected life, that uh, this wasn't the end that it looks. And so the mission is a mission of devotion. It may sound perhaps odd to our ears, this business of anointing. It's not too unlike a public viewing of a dead body. A dead body is prepared for viewing, and if the person is uh, particularly noteworthy, then that body may be on display for an entire day. And so there's some oddity to that notion as well. The anointing of a body... It would seem as though the body of Jesus had already been anointed in a way. Uh, when Jesus first died, uh, Nicodemus uh, wrapped uh, Jesus' body in linen as he was laid in the tomb. And so that's a, a bit of an anointing, perhaps. But even before Jesus was dead, he was anointed by a woman in the village of Bethany, an anointing that uh, Jesus himself said anticipated 
his death. But what's important for us here is that these three women are on a mission to show profound devotion to Jesus. Devotion is very much on their hearts. Devotion is what is motivating and compelling them to leave in secrecy to go to the tomb. Uh, their memory of him, their hope in him is such a, a kind of devotion. Now, if that's the case, if that's the case that it's devotion that is motivating them, isn't it peculiar then that what discussion, that the discussion that would be on their lips would be the matter of the rolling away of the stone? How interesting that that would be such a chief concern to them. Have you ever considered that there are so many other things for Mark, the writer of this gospel, to record? I mean, notice that Mark even goes so far as to say in verse 4 that the stone is very large. Now, there are other details that Mark could have included. He could have included the fact that there was a tremor the moment that stone had been rolled away. Matthew tells us this. Or Mark could have interjected the fact that the tomb was at one time guarded by Roman soldiers. Matthew tells us this as well, but Mark doesn't. He tells us that the practical matter of the stone thoroughly occupied the thoughts of these women. They're walking in secrecy to perform an act of devotion, and yet their concern is highly pragmatic. What about that stone? And this mingling of actions of devotion uh, with pragmatic plans is such an apt picture of our own lives, isn't it? Here we have these women engaged in devotion, but their human inability to move a large stone invades that devotion. In only the rarest moments of our own lives have we been able to engage our Lord with the kind of devotion that he deserves. When was the last time you offered a devotion to your Lord and Savior that wasn't uh, mixed with, commingled with the worries and cares of the day? And that's what these women are experiencing. It may be that we ourselves have uh, never experienced the kind of devotion that wasn't uh, riddled with distractions about money or work or marriage or uh, parenting. I've heard it said of a very mature and respected minister, in fact, a man uh, that I know, that uh, with some... uh, with all the years of ministry, uh, good years of ministry, he himself has had but two afternoons of devotion in all of his life in which he says he wasn't riddled with the distractions and cares of the world. And he was very sincere when he shared this. Two times in his life where he can recall that he actually had the kind of devotion to his Savior that wasn't filled with distractions of the world or touched by the distractions of the world. And uh, here then, these women display as they walk to the tomb in devotion to Christ what it's like to have their minds filled with seemingly unimportant cares. Now, 
We know the story. Uh, They don't actually have to deal with that large stone, do they? That's the only conversation we have heard from them on this mission of devotion, their concern about that large stone. And in fact, they they don't even have to move the stone. So uh, similar are our own worldly cares. Uh, The things that trouble our minds are things that our Father will care for. He'll work those things out. He will be with us in all circumstances. He will never leave us. What earthly circumstance can be so large that would bar you from devotion to your Lord? And yet it happens all the time. And these women don't actually have to deal with that stone. Uh, There's something more that greets them. Uh, A man, we're told in verse 5, seated inside the open tomb. A scholar describes the emotional state of these women as not simply uh, overwhelmed with earthly matters like the proper way to deal with a large stone. He says that these women are actually consumed with the death of Jesus. How tragic that is, how unfortunate that is. They watched him die, and in their minds he is dead. Do they actually believe in the resurrection as they're walking to this tomb? Verse 6 contains the words of this angelic host to the women. And this is the most honest description of their emotional state. This young man, uh, a young man is actually not uncommon in Scripture to uh, be uh, uh, the form that an angelic host takes, a, a young man dressed in white. This young man says that the women are alarmed. He says that they're alarmed. They don't say that they're alarmed. He sees it. He understands something about their emotional state. And he actually calls them alarmed. Over and over and over again in Jesus' ministry, he knew the minds of those that were challenging him. And this angel understands exactly what's going on in the hearts of the women. And it's interesting that he doesn't praise their devotion Isn't that interesting? What he does instead is he says that you are alarmed, a word that only Mark uses. And it's a word that describes a special kind of uh, distress mixed with astonishment, mixed with fear. It's like a surprise that has extraordinary ramifications. Uh, Imagine the announcement of a pregnancy and the announcement of the death of a dear friend. What is similar about the emotional response to those announcements? Surprise, an awareness of implications as a result of this news. Somehow, the the word only shows up twice uh, in the Greek Bible, but somehow that's what that distress is. It's a distress, astonishment, and fear uh, all rolled up into one. It's a surprise with a host of ramifications. A surprise that, is, that indeed to Mark stands out. You know, their assumption was that he was dead. That's why the surprise, that's why the distress and astonishment, their assumption was that he was dead. And it wasn't a casual assumption. They were committed to the death of Jesus. They set out early that morning. Why? Because he's dead. 
That was their committed assumption. And so this angel says to them, You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He sees the distress in their eyes. He reads the distress in their hearts. And he knows that they are seeking a dead man. Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. This assumption of the death of Jesus had a powerful effect on everything about their lives, everything about their past and their present and their future. This is why one scholar says that while they were consumed with death, that the angel seems to be consumed with life. They have assumed the death of Jesus, and this assumption has controlled everything about their, their thoughts and their speech and their actions. He's dead, and it makes sense to offer the kind of devotion appropriate to dead people. It makes sense to worry about access to the body through that stone. It makes sense to be distressed about the open tomb. It makes sense to be astonished at the lack of a body. All of this makes sense because they had assumed that Jesus was dead. Well, this should stand out to us because these women are consumed with Jesus' death and the angel can read it in their hearts. And they're driven by this assumption in everything that they do. And if I could make an aside that properly understanding the Bible, properly understanding the doctrine of the Bible is critical to us, I would offer this as an aside. We are easily driven by our assumptions. And if you make bad assumptions about the Bible or about the doctrine of Christianity, that has ramifications for your life. The Bible tells us what marriage is. Don't rely upon your own assumptions about marriage. The Bible tells us about what is important in life. Doubt your own assumptions about what is important in life. Our assumptions are like the, the energy, the, the power that, that propels us into this world. Amidst suffering, we are making assumptions about the legitimate or illegitimate role of suffering in our lives. You make assumptions about the purpose of your job. You make assumptions about what money ought to be able to do in your life. Assuming that there's no such thing as the resurrection of Jesus is but, what, is but one of many assumptions that work as intellectual energy that propels us through life. To doubt the resurrection has ramifications in your life. And the women show up at the empty tomb assuming that Jesus is dead. Now, in verse 6, we have to notice this contrast because the angel offers a counter-narrative. Uh, the angel offers a new assumption. The angel says, He has risen. He is not here. And what's important for us is to capture that great distance between the narrative that the angel gives and the narrative that these women show up into the empty tomb with. They're looking for Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. You're looking for a dead man. He has been raised. He is not here. How tremendously different that is. 
Something has happened that defies the assumption of the women, even though they'd been told over and over and over again by Jesus that he would rise from the dead. Now, something to pay attention to in the words of verse 6, the words of this angel, uh, Jesus doesn't raise himself. This is far more clearer in the Greek than it is in the English. Jesus doesn't raise himself. He has been risen by God. The verb's passive there. Uh, Not even God could judge Jesus to eternal punishment. To be risen by God, uh, to have God actually uh, rise, rise up Jesus from the dead is an expression of God's satisfaction in the perfect life and ministry of Jesus. To be risen by God is to have satisfied all of God's perfect demands for humanity. We don't often take this passage back to its roots, back to Genesis 3, when God promised to one day defeat the punishment of death inflicted on Adam and Eve and everyone after them for their sin and rebellion. And this is that day, the day that Adam's sin is dealt with by perfect obedience and the judgment of death ends because Jesus Jesus satisfies God's judgment. No judge exists for Jesus, not even God. And so death can't hold him back. Why? He has been raised by God. This is what Paul means when he says that the resurrection is freedom from sin. Every Christian has this freedom from sin's curse and punishment. The resurrection of Jesus is the satisfaction of God, both on Jesus but God's satisfaction on all those who come to Jesus in faith. Jesus has satisfied God, and so the punishment of death no longer lies on him, and God raises him from the dead. But the the angel in verse 6 says not only that Jesus has been raised, but that Jesus is not here. He's elsewhere. In fact, uh, reading down to verse 7, Jesus is in Galilee. And so while the women are consumed with with death, Jesus is uninterrupted by death, and in a manner, uh, he himself is consumed with life. Jesus continues on. It's remarkable how every time we find Jesus um, in Scripture, in the Gospels in particular, but when we find Jesus in, uh, referred to in the New Testament text after the Gospel, uh, Jesus is doing something. He's interceding. He is working. He is ruling. Uh, he is uh, guiding, directing. He is fighting. Uh, Jesus is uninterrupted by this death that the women had assumed. Jesus carries on in his life and in his ministry. The women are invited to see the emptiness of the tomb in verse 6, not simply as an encouragement that their sins are accounted for, but they're invited to see the emptiness of the tomb as an inducement to go and to pursue him, to see him. Two weeks ago, we looked at a passage, or a week ago, we looked at a passage of Greeks that wanted to see Jesus. And look what the angel does. The angel sends the women out that they would go see Jesus. Why? There's something to see. He's not dead. He's reigning. He's active. Go see him. He's teaching. Death does not interrupt him. And this is, this is isn't it, the very hope of human existence. The very hope of human existence is to see Jesus. It's not the promotion. It's not the paycheck. 
It's not perfection in this life. The very hope of life is to see Jesus. Those who refuse to come to God in Jesus, they too will see Jesus. But they ought never to hope to see him unless they bow their knees in worship to him. But for the Christian, this is your hope. And it's a secure hope. You will see Jesus. Today, he is resurrected. And would you not want to see him? Well, remember the agitation of heart of these women. The agitation that they endured as they're walking to the tomb. The desire to show devotion to someone who has died. The worry about the work ahead. How will we move that stone? The assumption of his tragic death. Does any of this accompany them now? As they leave, do they assume that he's dead? As they leave, do they worry about the work of the world moving a rock? As they leave, do any of those things concern them? Jesus isn't stopped by death. And they know that, and knowing that, they know that he is available to them, and they seek him. They walk now in the knowledge of the resurrection, and it makes all the difference in the world to them. All of the words that are used at the end of our passage, the trembling, the astonishment, even the fear, all of these words are words that show up in the Old Testament Bible as words of expectation, words in which they would know that the Messiah is here. This is the Messiah. It's very different than the kind of distress that they experienced in the empty tomb. And that's how they walk. That's how they leave. This awareness of the life of Jesus, this desire to see Jesus, the knowledge that their previous assumptions are gone. Now, that's the Christian life. The Christian life starts with an awareness of the resurrection. That if he dies on the cross and is never raised from the death, then there is cause for concern. It means I am still under sin. And it means that I still have no hope except the kind of hope I can generate here on earth. But if he's resurrected... I'm not condemned, and if he's resurrected, I have hope eternal. I'm reading an autobiography written by Robert Graves. Not many people know him. He's a famous poet uh, from the World War I period. Englishman, not a believer, but he served in World War I immediately after college, um, age, uh, uh, ages 19 through 23. And when he finished, he wrote a great deal of poetry and is, uh, becomes a very respected author. But he writes an autobiography about going into war. He had uh, many years before given up on Jesus Christ, raised in a Christian home, um, didn't quite make it even into college as a believer. But there's something that stood out to him. When Welsh soldiers went into uh, or left the trenches to go into no man's land to fight, more often than not, they were singing. Apparently, the Welsh loved to sing. He's heard many songs sung by Welshmen. Welsh soldiers do that. 
But when they're afraid, and when life is difficult, they sing a different kind of song. Robert Graves says this. He says he was uh, observing uh, new recruits, uh, new uh, soldiers, and he says none of the draft, none of these new guys had been out before, that is, uh, out of the uh, trench fighting. And none of the draft had been out before except the sergeant in charge. And they left their trenches and they began singing. And instead of the usual music hall songs, they sang Welsh hymns. And not only that, they sang Welsh hymns in such a way that each man sang his own part. He says, the Welsh always sang when pretending not to be scared. They always sang when pretending not to be scared. He says, it kept them steady. And when they sang, they never sang out of tune. Well, of course, many of them died. That's the nature of war. And everyone sitting here who professes faith in Jesus Christ still struggles with the effects of indwelling sin right now. And as we go out into this world, we, are, we feel that we are completely subservient to trials and circumstances. Loved ones die. We become ill. Things go wrong. That is the Christian life. And it will always be that way until we see Jesus again. And then life won't be that way. But that is what you have, Christian, right now. And my question to you would be, what kind of hymn will you sing in this life? In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul laments that the Corinthian church was not singing the hymn of the resurrection. That one got them into trouble, culturally speaking. That one became hard to maintain even in the life of the church. But Christian, that is, that is your hymn. Your hymn is the hymn of the resurrection. And you sing that in your fear. And you sing it well. Because you will see your Jesus. Because he's risen. Welcome to Resurrection Sunday. Can we pray together? Let's pray. Our Jesus, you somehow have ears, glorified ears, physical in a glorified, mysterious way. You somehow have ears and legs and arms, a, a body of some sort, a glorified body that ascended into heaven. Jesus, you are resurrected. And in your resurrection, we have resurrected life. Jesus, thank you for your faithful obedience to your heavenly Father that you can write what Adam, our first father, wronged. Jesus, we thank you for your faithfulness to your Father and we live through your resurrected life. As we leave this place, teach us to sing of the resurrection in any and all circumstances. For your glory's sake we come. Amen.